Before we begin, we'd like to thank our final Kickstarter backer, Kelly. Just Kelly. That's all, all we have for our last Kickstarter backer. So thank you, Kelly. Now on to episode five. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Steven. Welcome to Tales from the SAS Graveyard, where we talk to employees at tech companies that are in the middle of the bell curve. Not going out of business, but definitely not hitting the big time. The SAS Graveyard is a purgatory populated by companies that have made it to annual revenues in the 30 to 50 million range, but can't get to the next level. Which is pretty impressive outside of Silicon Valley, but frowned upon here. We interview folks in various roles about their experience working at companies like this. We're looking to see what common themes emerge across industries and roles. Today we'll be talking with my friend Chris, who worked in public relations for a social media platform. It's not Facebook or Twitter, but this is a company where I've used their product. Was it something you were on all day at work to avoid being productive? It definitely was mind-numbing, but I wasn't on it all the time. I never actively went to it. I'd just break out of a trance and realize I'd lost five minutes of my life and then moved on to something, something else, something more productive. Now, I've never used this particular product, but I understand that wasteful feeling that you get when you're on social media like Facebook or Twitter. Hopefully none of our listeners are experiencing that feeling right now. Well, before they do, Jake, let's bring out Chris. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Awesome. So just before we, we kick off, can you give us a sense of the, the SAS graveyard, graveyard company you were at? So uh, I, I have a lot of experience in, in a variety of companies, but for this company in particular, uh, I would argue that it's kind of like a mid-tier social platform. Uh, I was there for a pretty short period of time in my career, only about four months, uh, three or four years ago. And uh, the experiences there were kind of fascinating because this was like the, the biggest company at the time when it came for like investment and and sort of outside attention. And I was brought on board in a marketing and communications role. So, um, but I'm, I'm kind of thrilled to be talking about it, you know, and it's exciting to sort of view them and think about them for the first time in a few years. Yeah, and so also along with that, um, how big was the company as far as like employee size when you joined, amount of funding, and then also kind of the size of it when you when you left? Oh yeah, so that was interesting. So I, I got looped in I had so a bit of my background is I come from the gaming space. Uh, I, I worked at various multinational uh, gaming companies. Not to get too specific in who I am, but like mostly focused on like like uh, some Chinese massively multiplayer games or uh, uh, Japanese or Korean mobile mobile games. So a lot of the products that I work on and have historically worked on tend to be products that have long legs. And this was during a period of time in my career when I was looking to expand my my working experience and portfolio outside of the gaming space. So I had seen and been aware of this company as a consumer and as a user, and they had a job posting that fit in line with my work experience. Um, And I got the role, which was great. Um, They offered a, for me, coming from gaming, which uh, tips and tricks anyone listening Gaming offers like notoriously like a 20% pay cut compared to anything they do comparable in like a B2B or a B2C space. So I was like, oh my God, there's some real money here and, and I could actually make a, a step as a professional. So when I started there, I think there was maybe about like 28 people on site. And considering the nature of the company, that was that was pretty appropriate. They were going through a, a series of growth um, at that time. There was, from what I, my understanding, there was a kind of an evaluation within that company that they were going to... Be, position themselves as a leader in their very specific vertical um, to ultimately become comparable to something like Twitter or Facebook. So that was their objective. That was their goal. 
Um, there were some complementary companies that, that we regularly engaged with and some changes that happened to the marketplace, which I think was really the biggest problem with the company I was at, was they didn't really have something to pr protect themselves from a foreseeable reality that was due to happen. And they're still around today, and I, I, and, and I have, you know, my years of ill will towards them have passed, uh, but we can dive into that later. So, so as, as, since this was a consumer-facing site, about how many users were there on a, a month, would you oh, say? You oh, a ton. Ballpark? Like, high hundred millions. Oh, wow. It was one of those, it was, it, and, and you know, it, it was one of those platforms that had multiple multi, multiple uses. There was one uh, there was one use that was more um, social media oriented, and that's where they wanted to position themselves towards their growth. That's mm -hmm. where they they wanted to get uh, uh, their investment and their users and their their monetization. But there was also historical. It was horse historically used as a platform. Um, I think a good example would be maybe like SoundCloud as a comparable platform where they're trying to create a, like a, a music service for independent musicians to share their music. Whereas initially it was just started as a, um, a platform for people to share remixes and music. Yeah, there was a ton of users, a ton of, of uh, a bandwidth. We had, uh, most of our, mus our, our users were from around the world, big US base, a big European use, a lot of Asian use. So it was a big comp, uh, 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 there was a lot of traffic, but that wasn't necessarily monetizable traffic. Mm. So, yeah. And you said 28 employees, was that just in that office or worldwide? That was, that was just about it. We had some people, some sales employees in other offices, but it was almost like they were freelancers and they, most of them got hired kind of near the end of my time at this company. So, yeah, and, and uh, yeah, so that, that's where they were. That's how big they were. I was there for four months. Um, a lot of really great, delightful people, and I, I worked in messaging and communications and PR. Did you have a sense of kind of the amount of revenue? I had a little bit of a sense. What happened was is they had done sort of a culture shift about six to nine months prior to my arrival, and they were looking aggressively looking towards growth. And for a lot of like a lot of companies in the Bay Area and in the tech space, what happens with that is they bring in a bunch of professionals who have been poached from other companies. Um, to enter into the C-suite or into upper management. And that's exactly what happened with me. Um, the creator of the core foundational tech behind this company was made the CEO. And many of, and this person just wasn't really equ equipped to really be able to handle that and then also the dev role. So they, he, he, I think quite smartly and intelligently brought in a bunch of professionals who could handle those areas of like sales, monetization, platform relations, uh, uh, advertising, um, you know, one big feature they offered was bespoke, uh, uh, customizable advertising, and, and actually a pivot away from, uh, why am I forgetting it, from algorithmic-based advertisement on the website. So that was kind of like, that was the sort of period that we were in, and unfortunately, uh, I was caught up, I got hired about midway through, and in my opinion, a lot, I've been through a couple of these types of growth periods. It usually lasts about nine months to 14, 15 months, where they go, we're very excited, they try to make changes, there are a few bottlenecks, those changes don't happen, or it doesn't actually move the needle in monetization and growth, and then the first wave of layoffs hit, and that's what happened with me. Um, they laid off 20% of the company, 
uh, in that period of time, I was gutted. I was, it felt incredibly personal. Yeah. And then a whole bunch of those people uh, sent me friend requests on Facebook later, including my boss's boss. My boss ended up moving and doing something different. And so, you know, once you, like with a lot of these companies in the Bay Area, it's hard to not take that type of stuff personally. But if you're able to get a full comprehensive picture, it's so not personal um, that it's almost insulting. Because <laughs> I really worked hard. That was that was actually the hardest uh, I've worked ever professionally. Four months of of really getting to the grindstone and putting my pouring myself into a company I really believed in at the time. So, yeah. yeah. I guess putting you back in your shoes and kind of that first day, of course, going through all that sounds. We're gonna hear a lot of great stories on this. Um, Which I and I love this company. I oh, yeah. loved this company. So, so first day there. So first of all, they're paying me more than I've ever, I'd ever made in gaming, and uh, and I think on paper they're still the highest I've ever made. Um, and it was cool. And you go in there, and and for our listeners here, I would argue that the days of you know really fun perks and amenities like old school Facebook are kind of on the we're on the tail end of that. That just does not happen anymore. Um, at least in my experience, I, I think more people and a lot of millennials as they get older into their 30s, they're more interested in, do I have health care? Right. Can I have health insurance and, and decent vacation time? And can I do I have a good work-life balance? Um, which I think overall is a good thing. But this company, oh my God, they had whole teams devoted to like, they would give you, we had a monthly, not a monthly, an annual like $500 stipend to, to use to do for whatever, personal growth. Most people use them for like vacations and stuff. We were allowed to use a certain amount of our time every month uh, towards like a cause that we wanted to work towards, which I never leveraged. No one ever used it. Um, it's so like great for recruiting. Like, oh wow, I could do such good if oh, I Oh, fabulous for recruiting. And in hindsight, like I could tell this was one of those, you know, really sad, tragic stories where there's a lot of people really excited about the, like I was vouching for like a yoga room because I was big into yoga at that time and we kind of set it up, no one used it. They had a nap room where you could take naps. All these fantastic amenities. You could bring in your dog, except the one of the higher-ups of the company had this vile little chihuahua that would bark and bite at everyone. But because they were so senior, they got away with it and and people could ostensibly bring their own dogs, but it was very much like a... The dogs couldn't be free. The dogs had to be kind of kept by your desk. It, it was it was strange to see the evolution and change from this optimistic, wonderful, delightful, charming, little, and I put quotes in that, little company yeah. um, that was in a period of growth and change. And they were losing sort of that uh, family that they had built because the, the, the CEO really that the first 10 or 15 or so people that worked for the company were his friends and and com- compatriots in in this product that they were offering how old was the company then when you joined like how long how long had that group of 10 been together oh three five seven years something like that like mm-hmm. it's it's been a few years for me and uh it, you know i don't know if you've ever been laid off but one of the objectives that i've had when i get laid off is to try to forget as much about that company <laughs> as i can the big irony about this company is most of the people that i had uh, worked with they all they've all moved on they've all left and I think there's this weird sense of disappointment for those people Um, after the first layoff I set up a Facebook group of alumni from this this platform we chatted and and uh, and then one of them basically my boss's boss the person who made the decision to lay me off uh, he got looped into the group because he left. He had left that company like a year and a half later. And by this point, I was kind of over everything. I was like, I'd found a job. It took me nine months to find a job wow. after this layoff. It was awful. 
but I work in PR. It's kind of a generally, and it's kind of a harder position to find roles mm-hmm. for. And and this person, they had gone and they basically took over the, the the Facebook group. And I'm like, whatever, it's all yours. I I wish you guys the best. I I don't know you all very well. I was only there for four months. You know, I hope your lives are happy. There's no no point in having ill will towards them. Definitely. Um, you mentioned like all the all the perks. So when you first get there, how and you were a user of the site as well before. Mm-hmm. So that first week, like, how long did that period of euphoria last? Of- oh, the entire time. Okay. Oh, the entire time. Like, they were so good about pushing that 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 initiative, and it was all about like really creating this family mm-hmm. within the company. And I was so excited to be there because I keep in mind I came from gaming. Gaming can be like like the truth of it is gaming is the intersection between entertainment and uh, and and technology. But it picks the worst parts of those. I'm still in gaming. I love gaming. I really do. But it's a really weird industry with its own kind of nepotism and cronyism and narcissism and insecurities. And this company felt like something different. It felt like a company that was on growth. It felt like the first company I could say, don't give me a raise. Give me options. Give me give me stock. Give me non-salary-based compensation because this place is growing and growing and becoming great. And But it was also the first company that I worked at where when I left, I was like, I really should have paid more attention to the bigger picture. Um, and I would recommend most people when they're in their late 20s, early 30s, maybe second or third job and are looking to kind of slow down a bit because this was the job that I was going to slow down with. This was the job that I was going to be like, I'm going to be here for a while. I, all my other jobs, the longest had been like 18 months. And I'm like, I'm in my mid to late 20s. I'm ready to focus somewhere. And that, I thought that was, this company was going to be that. It wasn't, and it was that idea of this is where I'm going to settle more for, like that there's going to be this big financial payoff with options or more just like you were so excited about what the company was doing? Both. Yeah, why not both? Because I, 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 I come from the communications side. Like, like you know, I, I, in, my job is a bit of bullshit. And, but when you need what I do, you really need what I do. And I was, I had never really seen of or considered a, a job is, is like really being this far along and this this pronounced in my position and had this type of opportunity. And so I was excited to sort of be at a place where it's like I felt like I was free from gaming. I was free from my history in that industry and history from some of the politics that would show up there. So uh, there was, and what they had presented was just delightful. Like we're family and we care about each other and yeah, it works, but you know, you could, you could take every other Friday or like once one Friday a month off to work from home and like make it your time. And the perks were really great and they generally enforced most of them. Um, if you were sick, we don't want you coming in, bringing your dog as long as it's a cool dog. Like, these are really nice things and really contribute to that family feeling, but... And the people themselves were nice as well? Generally, yeah. There was a couple like really like sniping, crabby coders, but you know... <laughs> I, we work in tech, like it happens. They have they work harder than I do, and I, I I'm the first to admit that. Like I res- nothing but respect for dev side. You guys can be tough to work with sometimes, but I respect what you do. And if we can break past that crabbiness and and our our weird interpersonal politics, I, I can make magic happen. And they appreciate that too. So, so one <clears> thing <throat> Steve and I talked about before you got here is neither of us actually understands what someone in PR does. So mm-hmm. can you just sort of walk through kind of what you did okay. on a typical day there or so, a big um, project you worked on? Yeah, so when I, I started, what, what PR generally is, is it's a dissemination of information from a, co- a company and, and very 
defined, ideally very defined information. So generally, my so my job at this company was much more tactile. Junior level PR is kind of soul crushing. It's a lot of pitching to reporters, cold calling. We don't really do cold calls anymore. I think some PR professionals who may listen will think I'm crazy, but I, I generally try to respect my reporters and I work in tech and most reporters don't want to pick up a phone from a phone number they don't know. Right. If I, I, I tend to schedule my calls. I tend to, hey, we are offering you this. Would you like to talk about this? We can give you this person to speak to. So <clears throat> day to day. Come into the office, clear out my email. Usually it uh, depends on the type of company you're at. This was a, a Bay Area-based company. Everyone was working in the Bay Area. We're all in the same time zone, so there wasn't like a ton of emails right at the, at the beginning. Most of the stuff we'd be dealing throughout the day. Um, I've worked at multinational companies where I come in in the morning and there's a ton of emails for me. Right. And then a big chunk of my day is addressing those emails. Um, depending on the type of company you're at, you could be directly acting as a liaison in a public-facing maybe even spokesperson for the company, uh, to media, depending on a, a discussion on a certain topic. It could be negative stuff. You know, it could be layoffs. It could be uh, uh, issues with a legal process, a legal procedure. I haven't, fortunately, have not had to deal too much with that. Um, it, and when you're junior, what you're often doing is pushing a narrative. You're just pushing a story. So at this company in particular, what happened is, they brought me on board because of my experience in gaming. And they had done some studies where there was a target demographic that was in alignment with my experience. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to reach that demographic and they wanted to bring in a professional who understood the audience. Great, millennial men, I'm a millennial man, I like gaming, I like sports, I like what you know, EDM, whatever. So they brought me in. And uh, they, and I, yeah, I can talk about this. They had a white paper that was justifying this information and this and these details. And so for a big chunk of that four months, I was actually pushing this white paper and pushing this narrative. And I actually really, really like this. And I wish more companies would do this, where they have like a, a quarterly or semesterly or an annual narrative, a, a story they want to share about their company, you know, uh, and, and this is great for companies that don't necessarily have a super tangible product. Like, mm -hmm. Apple can go out and talk about Apple products. Right, the new camera on the phone Exactly. Or There's always something to, to chat about. Facebook can, can generally do the same thing. Facebook, on the other hand, like, I don't know if I could ever be a PR person for Facebook because it's all damage control all the time. Um, and, you know, and, and props to them if they can do it right. And and one of the things that I try strive to do in any comms role, whether it's social media, communications, PR... Um, is that doing it as ethically as possible because there are people out there who cross the line and you know things stop being ethical and that's incredibly problematic. So I came in here and I really liked the company. We had the study, we had the information, we had this white paper, we had this very specific message we wanted to share about this growing cohort of people. And that was in alignment with my company. And my company wanted to go for the B2B message. So they weren't taking this message and sharing it with consumers because we didn't care about that because the consumers are coming to our platform. And the, 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 a lot of people misconstrue public relations as a user acquisition tool. PR is never there for user acquisition, whether it's a mobile app or a, a, a PC MMO or getting people to sign up for a, a web-based platform like Facebook the product has to be good. And user acquisition and marketing, that's how you get people in there. PR does not have metrics that are quantifiable very well. Um, ostensibly, I did have some metrics I was supposed to do. The goal that they had with me was to share this message of this white paper. So 
the big arc that I was doing was reaching out to the publications like the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Wired Magazine, um, uh, Gizmodo, tech blogs, and trying to get them to talk about my platform to the same effect that they would be talking about our competitors and our aspirational targets. So the goal was to make these publications talk about this platform in the same way they would talk about Reddit or Facebook. Is this to get more people to advertise on you, or what's the end goal? Of- the end goal is is mindshare. That, mm-hmm. that's, that's it. And that's, that's an impossible thing to quantify. And so when I talk to companies, like if I'm going to a job interview, I really, you know, if we're going to be, I, I like to make sure that whatever we're doing, we have an, an objective for it. And sometimes the ROI on that isn't super clear. Okay, we have an opportunity to speak at a conference. I work in gaming, so let's use GDC. We have an opportunity to speak at GDC. What is the end goal for this this discussion? Do we want to talk about level design? Well, let's get our best level designer up there and present this person as a thought leader in, in progressive level design. Um, in our case, we wanted to own the mind share of investors, some consumers, uh, tech-focused media, and other... It was ultimately to build a case publicly about our leadership in the specific demographic. And ultimately, the way that was going to become profitable or, or a lead to monetization is through ad sales. And so, it, you know, PR can be really, really great. Like, if you get a placement at this great publication, well, yeah, you have maybe 10,000 people reading the article. It's, you know, I'm shrugging right now because it's like, well, that number doesn't sound like much. It's not going to really move the needle on profitability. Right. However, if you can get a publication, uh, uh, an article in the Wall Street Journal espousing, hey, this is kind of cool. You take that article, you send it to your sales team, and then they send that over to their potential clients. And they say, hey, I don't know if you read this, but we were in the Wall Street Journal. Um, and adds in some credibility. It, it, it's, it's all about credibility and thought leadership. So ultimately, my goal at that company and in the subsequent companies is to define the, who the company is publicly, yeah. define how people think about this company um, in both media, um, investors, and, uh, and ultimately consumers, and then let that begin to carry the credibility, authority, and cachet of that company towards monetization. So in these, were at this company that we're talking about today, did you have any successes? So at this company, they wanted to see this thought leadership objective really push and grow. And uh, there were two things I did. One, I was pushing heavily on this big uh, uh, white paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was going out towards big publications like the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and the New York Times. and. Um, mostly U.S.-focused publications, and we targeted a lot of pubs based out of the East Coast. Those ones we offered, hey, we'll have an interview with the CEO. Um, We have this white paper. We're discussing this topic. We're talking about our growth. We're talking about how we're moving and shaking in the industry. Uh, Great, cool. And I secured one with the Wall Street Journal, which was a nice placement. I don't get those types of placements very often in my line of work. But that actually takes a lot of work. So what happens is we, uh, fun fact for people who are interested in what PR do people do, we have a story. Uh, we want to tell a narrative. We get a reporter interested. We, we present them with sort of the, the, the story pitch, which is like any reporter, freelancer would pitch to an editor at a publication. And then <clears throat> we say, hey, uh, we're going to have these questions asked or we, we'll talk about this. Typically, the reporter, uh, if they're cool, they'll send us over some questions. Sometimes they won't. It's fine. It's all part of the, 
interpersonal politics and give and take between media and public relations. And, uh, and then what we do is we go through media training, and this can take hours. This can be really, really difficult for um, the people on the receiving end of that. So media training happens whether it's in crisis PR or pre-launch PR or whatever, and that means that I sit down with the person who's going to be interviewed, and I train them how to a- answer tough questions. That makes sense. Like that's right. that, you're just getting them prepared for the interview. Exactly, but sometimes like you'll miss a question and it's a total disaster. Um, I once conducted media trained someone or thought they had been media trained, and an, an interview that should have taken 20 minutes took two hours, and it was horrible. It was absolute disaster, and I really feel for the reporter who had to parse through all of that recording. But they were great. <clears throat> um, so, uh, so I, I media trained the the, the CEO. The article went live. It was beautiful. It was great. Um, it looks great. And then the other half of my job was uh, we had oh, yeah we had built a, my boss had built a database of reporters who had opted in to receive content from this destination, and uh, I would provide uh, examples. I would I would send to that media list every day, mm-hmm. which means I was looking for idealized, media-friendly, easy-to-pull, juicy placements. Got it. Um, and without getting too in the details, there's some other like like software tools and things that we were offering. And and so the goal is to see those placements. I track those. So like daily, I'd be like on our own website. So there was a little bit of like a, almost like a social media, social engagement part of this job, which was kind of cool. Um, but I'd dig through there, I'd find the stuff, I'd send it out to the reporters, they'd be like, yeah, thanks, they'd be like, hey, can you unsubscribe me? And I'd do that, and then, and then I'd track if I got any placements, and that's how I'd normally spend my morning, is, is seeing if anyone picked up any of the things I had shared. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was cool. It, I, I kind of wish we could have had opportunities for a little bit more innovation in the narrative we were trying to share. However, in the defense of my boss, she was really pushing for that too, and she, she and I were really on the same page for that. And, you know, it, in hindsight, it's kind of not that much of a surprise that just a couple months after I left, uh, she had changed her relationship with that company and was doing something different. So, um, you know, the, the big takeaway that I had from this company was that, it, you know, for the longest time, layoffs and stuff really did feel personal. And they do feel personal. And they often are really personal. But also, they're totally not at the same time. It's just really weird weird, weird, weird situation that's hard to define. Now, you were there for such a short time. Yeah. And you're so excited when you started, and it sounded like you were enjoying the work that you were doing on a daily basis. When did you first, did you ever, did, up until the day you got laid off, did you have any suspicions like, oh, this could be coming, or things um, don't seem right? What I will say is, it's because of this company, I've, I've built kind of a, a, a sixth sense to impending problematic situations within a company. And I think a lot of people who work in tech, especially in the Bay Area, kind of consensus. If you're in an industry that has a lot of churn and a lot of layoffs, you can kind of be like, hmm. Like, I, I did notice that they were uh, there were fewer meetings I was a part of uh, that previously I had been a part of. But I was like, it was weird. Like, I, I don't want to say that I'm jaded now, but... I'm jaded defensively now where it's like I could sniff things out and, and I I learned how to – now I know how to pick my battles because when I was there, it's like I'd, I'd really kind of strong arm and be like make myself heard and make myself part of this conversation and really bring my expertise once I get totally not asked for and it doesn't benefit myself to do that. Like the only way I could make that happen was either earn it 
or um, find another job where that stuff is celebrated. Right. And ultimately, that is what happened. Um, you know, they. The, I, I would say that that I could tell that I was being pulled off of some stuff, which I had experienced at previous jobs. But there were much more meetings between the C-suite and senior members, management members of the team having conversations and meeting rooms for hours at a time. And all of a sudden there was like budgetary cuts and like some of those fun amenities. Uh, When they started, uh, there was like a a leasing out of part of the office to other startups. I was like, oh, that's strange. That used to be our nap room. And now it's uh, some company I've never heard of before. New people are in here. So yeah, that was kind of the, the thing I sniffed out. Anyone listening, when things get weird, it's for a reason. Like, pay attention to that. Like, if things start to feel weird, it means something weird is happening. And I guarantee that's how it is everywhere. Yeah. Well, earlier you had mentioned that you felt the CEO wasn't equipped to be the CEO. What, yeah. were, the, what were the signs of that? Well, that was just known. That was just known. The CEO was a, a coder who... So even from, like, day one at the company, you knew, oh, this guy just shouldn't yeah, be Yeah, yeah. It was, it, was, it was almost something that everyone was fairly comfortable talking about. And I think he kind of was comfortable talking about it. That's why they hired in... Um, marketing managers and sales managers and, and communications managers and VPs and all that stuff. Like they were brought in from other companies that had a successful track record. The CEO created a great product and had no idea how to talk about it, no idea how to sell it, no idea how to monetize it. These people brought in and do that. Did, after, even after those more senior people were brought in, did it feel like though that there's a lack of like person at the top who's direct, who's like, actually leading the company the way it should be or did it feel like oh now we've got these people and we're in good shape honestly a little bit a little bit of the second however i will say that i've been at plenty of companies where you know oftentimes there's a seen or unseen or unacknowledged problem with the service or product that they're providing um you know it's it's a, a house built out of cards like you know you take one piece out of it and that could be, you know, a bearing wall and the whole thing falls apart. And I think this company kind of had that issue. I think they've rectified largely and they're doing pretty good now and I wish them the best. Um, but, you know, they really, really, like, there was ambitious leaders who were really, like, were gung-ho about it. But it is disturbing when those ambitious leaders who are, like, really gung-ho and they leave after, like, nine months or 12 months. And I, I think the people I'm thinking of in particular left at, like, 18 months so they'd been there for a bit but but still they really still believed in the product they probably would be sticking around I think I think most of them were really believing in the option to cash out and get a lot of money but that's fairly universal and I don't hold that against them like I get it right um, another thing you mentioned at one point is that when these people were brought in there they were trying to make changes within the company but that they came up against bottlenecks or the things they couldn't change what were like some of those examples <laughs> uh so, oh gosh, some of this was very specific to the to the platform at, at hand, and I don't I don't want to get too okay. deep into it, but um, a little bit on the engineering and development side, there were there were uh, requests made by uh, the users that uh, if this feature was implemented into the service, um, actually it turned out very few people really used that feature, and I found out because it took them like another year or two after I left before they actually implemented this specific feature that. In all, the, in all the communication threads, we want this, we want this. Well, they implemented it. No one cared. Like, no right. one used I heard, like, the, the conversion rate was, like, you know, less than 1% and you actually using this tool. So, it, so yeah, there, there was some stuff. Stuff, stuff like that. Yeah, stuff like that. It was, it was you know, very aspirational. The, the service we provided, uh, props to the CEO, but it was built on, 
I think an older language or the 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 actual tech behind it was not it, it wasn't it wasn't portable very easy to newer and better technologies. Um, I think that was kind of the issue that they had, but also uh, it wasn't it wasn't monetizing as rapidly as they wanted. Um, there were some key issues just due to the nature of the platform that was a bottleneck with. Uh, Things I can't get any more specific. No, that's, I, I, you know, these are common themes, and I, I feel like every company I've worked at, these things happen. Totally, I, it's like we want to redo. You know, we want to change this model here, and it's like, up, oh, we got to refactor the whole code yeah, to do yeah. this, and it's just part of tech. Or, or like, yeah, totally. Like that's absolutely like. Like at the end of the day, I still feel like most companies uh, succeed on luck. Like even yeah. Facebook, <laughs> yeah. Facebook has a huge foundation of luck built in there. And when they went public, they weren't doing great initially. And they, they've they made a monetizable product. And same with Google. Like, you know, and I really like Google products, but think about all the stuff they've created and launched that has just not done anything right. or gone anywhere. Like, and they have the, the, the liquidity and the cash fallback where they can make mistakes. But if you're in a startup or a small size company where like your one product is what you're making profit off of, you can't last long that way. It's same in gaming, which is where I'm at now. And it's like, you have a company, if you have one game knocked out of the park, great. But not every game is going to be a Minecraft or a League of Legends. Like, it's going to be fascinating to look at Riot over the next five years because they've, you know, they've got a bunch of games coming up. It's their first time they're launching something outside of League of Legends. And um, I'm fascinated to see if any of those games can tap into the zeitgeist or engage with, with players and users the same way as League. Um, this company that I worked at, very, very different, obviously. Uh, but I think that the, the, the CEO had developed a product that was needed and wanted at the time, and the nature of that product struggled to grow with the changing web-based ecosystem, and that's the core of it. And, and there really wasn't much room to change because the product they provided couldn't change much. And I think you can make that argument about Facebook and Twitter too. Like the core base product of those platforms, they can't really change too much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Twitter, Twitter doubled the size of the characters, and that's about it. Yeah, that's really it. They, they introduced Vine, and then they canceled yeah. Vine because probably because they couldn't monetize it, or or the legal risk of video content was was too much for them. And that is a big risk with video and and image based content is that so much of it is uh, loaded mm-hmm. and problematic. And, and, you know, it, it, I think that's why uh, social platforms in general, um, some of them struggle to, to diversify. That's why Facebook bought or, uh, Oculus, because it's something so completely different and is, is very, very early in what that technology can be. And, uh, I mean, we'll see how that goes in the next five to ten years, but they got in early on something, and I think that something still has a future. So. Yeah. I guess we want to lead into... The final the day. Fin- final day. Mm. So we had you ecstatic day your first day. And oh, like, most of the time you were there, you were pretty ecstatic. Yeah, so this was yeah. horrible. I was sick as a dog. Um, I was home. I actually took a sick day. I was that bad with the flu. I had been fighting off the flu or like a cold for a few days by this point. It was, this was like a Monday or Tuesday. and um, I, I get these calls. Like one time my mom called me and she's like, she's like, Chris... I'm so sorry. And I knew exactly what had happened. A pet had died. And, um, and I'm like, don't you dare tell me this. And I hung up with my mom. <laughs> so like, I have, I have a pretty good sense of this. And what happened was I'm sick as a dog. I'm lying in bed. 
I had had some generalized anxiety. Um, warning signs were going off in my brain, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I think it was because I had been pulled away from some stuff, and I just felt kind of like, what is going on? Like, And this is maybe the last month I was there. You know, and, and that's pretty lame for a, only being at a company for about four months. And my boss calls and she says, she says, Chris, I'm so sorry. And I say, I'm getting laid off now, am I? And she says, I'm, and she starts crying. And she says, yes. And I'm like, uh, and I'm like, well, I think I got, my, I got pretty heated. I was like, so what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What should I do? And she's like, she's like, can you come in? And I'm like, I'm sick as a dog. I'm retching and I'm cold and I'm fluish. I'm gonna come in later. And uh, and so like I had a, a short talk with her and uh, I texted some family members and I just kind of lied in bed, sick, feeling awful. And then I had that layoff feeling of just like that, that venom in the pit of your stomach, that nausea you get from looking like, oh my God, my, my future is closed. And it did close. I was unemployed for nine months after this. It was awful. Um, you know, and, and, and I refuse to take ownership that I deserve to be laid off or that I'm somehow not a good professional or I'm somehow not good at my job because I am good at those things. And I had built good relationships with my coworkers and this was entirely a, a fiscal decision. And I think most people listening to this need to recognize that when layoffs happen, by and large, it is not your fault. It is not personal. If you are doing your job and committing yourself to a company, it sucks, but you can't take it. I refuse to shoulder that type of burden upon myself. So <clears throat> uh, there was a big chunk of people laid off. I think about, maybe there were more employees at this company. I don't remember, but it was, it was about 20% of the company. And I was, I had been there the shortest or second shortest amount of time. Um, I think there might have been someone who had just been hired who was laid off really before they can get started. Um, and But everyone else was in the office, and they have these big all-hand meetings, and everyone comes right. in, and it's cute, and blah, blah, blah. And people were crying, and people were packing up their stuff, and then they left. I was not there for this. I heard this all secondhand. But I had all my stuff at the office, so I had to so get it. you had to it. go back eventually. Yeah, and she was like, and my boss was like, well, we can get it shipped to you. I'm like, no. I'll get it myself. Right. Because I was pissed. I was really angry. And and props to them. They they and they wholly recognize how pissed off I was. And and you know, and I I, I I could work the rest of my life without engaging with any of them and be perfectly happy with this. Because they upended my life and put my career on hold for almost a year. And uh, so I go in there like a few days later, um, still feeling crappy. Uh, I get hugs from a lot of people. Um, one of my coworkers who got laid off with me, uh, I'm talking with her online, and we're just kind of like ranting and raving and angry. I get into the office, I cry a little bit. It's really uncomfortable for everyone. I'm glad. I hope it was the most uncomfortable day ever for all of them. And uh, and then I left. And uh, but you know, I also took my severance contract before I signed it. I took it to a lawyer. Um, which I recommend anyone do if you get laid off. Um, don't sign anything right away. Um, know your rights before you leave, especially if you're working for a multinational company. Know what you can, what you are entitled to. Um, don't let them screw you over. Did you get time? Did the lawyer give you any advice on getting? Yeah, I talked to the lawyer, and he said, "Well, you know, they they they're." 
there's there's they're all legal for this type of layoff. Everything's kosher on their end. They're making an okay offer. I think I got either four weeks or six weeks. I think it was six weeks. That's it was pretty good. It's a pretty yeah. It was it was a pretty good severance. Yeah, no, totally. I made um I made one quarter of my salary not even working uh, there, but it's not much. So yeah, so like ultimately, what I would just say, uh, my big learning experience from this is I came into it. I, I would call it mid-level, low mid-level. So it wasn't like the first job out of college, but it was like like the second, third, fourth. Especially if you're in the Bay Area and the tech space, you're jumping jobs every 12, 18 months. Um, like, you know your stuff. You know what works. You know what doesn't. But you're not senior enough to really be managing people. That's really where I was at. Mm-hmm. And my big takeaway was that I cannot ever, 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 ever expect... I'm not entitled to a job. I'm not entitled to good health insurance. I'm not entitled to good benefits. I'm not entitled to loyalty. I'm not entitled to even having that position. And even if I I got hired for a role, what they say on the job description can be entirely different from what you actually end up doing. And that was the big takeaway that I came out from there. And the jaded version of myself is really looking out for number one. Um, you know, there's a time and a place for picking your battles and when you're going to be sick and when you're going to go on vacation and when you're going to do this. And you have to read the mind of your boss. You have to read the, check the tone of the company. If your CEO is coming into the office and throwing a temper tantrum, that's not a good place to be or a good time to be there. Don't engage with it. And so my big takeaway that I learned from this company is it is, you know, you have to be part of a group of employees while still protecting yourself. And if you're lucky, you get some people that you're willing to put your neck out for and they're willing to put their neck out, necks out there for you, but you can't expect it. You can't trust it's gonna be there. You can't trust that that everything's gonna work out. Even if you're a great employee working all eight hours and really getting stuff done. Um, that's just, that's, that's a fantasy. And that's a fantasy a lot of young people fall into. Um, and, 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 and the sooner, and I've talked about this with a lot of people who are like admin assistants, like I really want to move on and I really like you, you're really nice to me and people are mean to me, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, don't give them your loyalty. Um, and I, I, I feel comfortable saying that because I think even the people at this company, they would agree. They would agree the same thing. They would say, hey, they would point out to me and be like, this is what you did great. You were a bit extra and a bit too, I was younger, I was a yeah. lot. They're like you were too much in these moments. You shouldn't have tried to make yourself a part of this conversation. I could have been great and they could have been like, well, we need to lay someone off from your team. And it's not going to be the salespeople because I was weirdly a part of the sales team. Marcom and sales was strange. Um, it's not going to be the people bringing in money. It's going to be someone who's like, like my, the nature of my job is it's a nice to have. Right. It's a luxury. And it's a luxury and, and it sucks because depending on the company you're at, you're one of the first people laid off and, and that's the nature of the beast. So that's my big takeaway. Um, and, and something I would recommend to everyone, like, Always have a backup plan. Always be prepared, no matter what age you are. And you may not have 30 grand set aside to carry you through three months or six months. You may not have a year's worth of salary saved up in your bank account to touch, to tap into. I get it. I totally get it. But like, where are you going to live if things hit the fan? Where are you going to find a job? Where do you want to end up? These are all real tangible questions that you have to answer. And your boss and your company is not going to answer that. And that's something that took me a long time to learn. It's taken family members of mine a long time to learn. It's taken friends of mine a while to figure out. They're like, oh, shit, I have a great job, and it means nothing. (laughs) I think the one question that we always ask, and I'm very interested on how you'll say this, 
is if you'd go back in a time machine, you see that ad for this company, would you still respond? Oh, totally. Totally. Because <laughs> the company I was at prior was, my career is really funny. I've jumped around a lot of different jobs. I've been lucky because I've left jobs usually a couple months before a layoff happens. And like I said, my job is kind of expendable. Um, I'm not coding. I'm not making product. I'm not engineering. Uh and, and I respect that. I recognize that. I, I wholly understand that. And, you know, through this this sixth sense that everyone has to learn, you have to feel out what is going on with the company in anticipation of layoffs. Uh, I've usually left companies a few months before, uh, before something shit hits the fan. Um, the company I was at prior to this job was in a... It was a mobile gaming company. And... Uh, from another country, and they were in fantasy land about who they were and what they... They wanted to be Disney, and I'm like, you guys are nuts. There was nothing to do, and and it was, of, it was a, of a culture where they'd be more than happy to spend a ton of money on ancillary perks, like, oh, we're visiting town, let's take you to a $250 a head meal, as opposed to being us giving us like decent health insurance or paying us better. Um, it was a cultural thing, and... Uh, and so I, I left for this other job. And considering how much they were paying me, I would have left better. I would have had, if I could go back in time, I would have had, totally have a game plan for exiting and, and taking care of myself. And I would have, you know, I would have spent that four months looking for a job every day as opposed to, but that's, you know, 2020 hindsight. Here we are in 2020. So um, totally. But, you know, I, I graduated in 2010 in a really awful, 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 awful period to be looking for work. And my career has been hampered by it, and um, I've I've made peace with it, and I'm at a place that I like a lot right now with people I like working with, and and I think that's all most people can ask for: um, cover your bills, cover your bases, try to be happy, and make sure that you're doing that for yourself and not for a company. Chris, thanks for joining us. Ah, absolutely, I'm glad to be here. Thank you, guys. coaster of emotions. We've had other guests that have been laid off, but I really felt the pain with Chris. He could understand the rationale behind the layoffs, and I liked his advice about not taking it personally and remembering that you're still a valuable professional, but then he'd admit to having years of ill will. Your head knows it's just business, but your heart has bought into the whole concept that this is a big family. I don't know if it is from the head or the heart, but he had that sixth sense that something was off and bad things were coming. Gotta listen to your spidey sense. When you've been at a company with layoffs, did you have this feeling they were coming? I remember that I was at a company that did have layoffs and somehow we all knew they were coming. I don't know how we knew that. And I remember that I asked my boss's boss if he knew anything and he said, I know as much as you. Until this day, I don't know if he was telling the truth or whether he knew more information than I did. How about you? I, I had a similar thing you said where somehow all of us knew that layoffs were coming and then I remember going to morning stand-up one day, and a few members of the team were gone, and I looked at this other woman on my team, and we just had that look in each other's eyes of like, oh my god, half our team just got laid off. Um, it's tough. Ugh. Oh, that reminds me. Jake, when we're done recording this, I'm going to need you to talk to me in HR. It's nothing to be concerned about. Well, listeners, if I'm still here for episode six, we are looking for more guests. If you or someone you love has worked at a SAS graveyard, please let us know. You can email us at sasgraveyard at gmail.com or tweet at us at sasgraveyard. 
We are especially interested in people in the following roles, finance, human resources, legal, any C-suite, customer success, data scientists, or analysts. And assuming we find a guest, we'll have our next episode six in April.